So we're, we're a quarter of the way toward my private Jesus jet. <laughs> we're going to sp- spread the gospel. Have you ever seen that? Don't watch it, the YouTube video where they, it's like a mockery of, of that kind of uh, taking people's money for stupid reasons. And this guy's like, I need you to give money toward this Jesus jet. And it's like, I'll show you a picture of what it's going to look like. And it was a jet. And the, it's Jesus, like, on the bottom of the jet. So we can bring hope to people when we fly over. <laughs> it's like so bad. Oh, YouTube. Uh, much more I could say about that. But uh, thank you guys for your generosity. It's really it's exciting. It feels like we put on big boy pants last year uh, as far as the church of just moving toward uh, maturity. I mean, I think back to eight and a half years ago when Dora Pope started, and uh, I was meeting with an average of 10 to probably 10 to 15 people a week for coffee. And the financial state at that point was that I bought everybody's coffee uh, because it was a lot of young, excited uh, people who had yet to enter into their careers. And it's just it's so fascinating to watch a church mature and uh, actually get, catch a vision for uh, generosity because the gospel is God's generosity toward us in Jesus. So super exciting. Um, well, hey, today we are, I'm not buying a jet, by the way. Just wanted to let you know. Uh, okay. Uh, today we're going to begin uh, our journey into the book of Acts. I don't know how long we will be in Acts. Uh, I, would, I would guess it'll be at least a year. Uh, and the reason that we are going to be looking at the book of Acts, and I'm really excited. I've actually never taught, taught Acts, so I've had to do so much reading uh, to get ready for this uh, particular series. Uh, and the reason that I've, I'm wanting to explore Acts uh, for us as a church uh, is because at the age that we're at, uh, it's easy as we move toward that 10-year mark, we're eight and a half years old, uh, for the church as it grows to become um, apathetic in its mission, to forget its identity, uh, to lose sight of its purpose. And Acts gives us really the healthiest season of the church's existence, which was about 30 years. And that's when the church was the most healthy, the most vibrant. And I think that we constantly, as a church, through the ages, are constantly trying to get back to what we call an apostolic faith. I, I think that these three crucial decades, the book of Acts covers three decades, the years between 80, 80 33, and 64, uh, this movement was so radical that in those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the world's largest religion. And I, I think that to speak of where Christianity is at today, I just read a statistic that it is spread into every corner of the globe and has more than 2 billion adherents. So I think that we need to understand that the book of Acts is about Jesus's continued mission through the Holy Spirit-empowered church. It's not the acts of the apostles. It is the continued acts of Jesus Christ. That what makes Christianity unique Uh, from other world religions is that we do not believe that our founder is buried in the ground. We believe that he conquered death, that he was resurrected, that he showed himself 
to his followers. He gave them instruction around the coming of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God, and he basically sent them out into mission. And the book of Acts records that first 30 years of the church's birth and its mission to bring the very presence of Christ by the power of the Spirit to the known world. And I think it's so essential for us as a church to understand that we are a part of that mission. The beautiful thing about the books of, book of Acts is it doesn't have a proper closing because it's an unfinished story, and we are continuing to add to that story even today. So if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're just going to look at the first 11 verses, uh, and we're going to consider in this introduction really the mission that Christ gives to his disciples in this moment between the resurrection and the ascension. We're going to consider the, the, the nature uh, of the kingdom of God and then, and then the ascension of Christ himself uh, to establish kind of the foundation of what this book is to be about and what it's to be about for us today in this particular context. And so beginning with verses 1 through 5 in chapter 1 of Acts, Luke, the physician, the beloved physician, writes this, and we know that Luke was a companion of Paul. In fact, he writes himself into the story as you move uh, into chapters 12 forward. But here he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, uh, we don't know who Theophilus is. All we know is that it's a really crazy name that just means lover of God. Uh, but what is the first book that Luke is talking about? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, what was the first book? The Gospel of Luke. So this is part two of Luke's history of the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus, and now the continued work of Jesus through his church. It's very powerful. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So notice, it's not a finished story. This is a continued thing that Jesus is doing. Until the day when he was taken up, speaking of his ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Luke is not saying that Jesus, Luke is a physician. He understands the gospel. Uh, if we read the gospel of Luke, we know that Luke believes that Jesus actually died. And so here when he says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, he is speaking of suffering unto death, that Jesus is in his resurrected form and he showed himself to his disciples, I think that it is so important that we understand that the reason that the gospel exploded through Jerusalem and to the edges of the, the known world at the time uh, was due to the, the absolute explicit belief by those eyewitnesses, those original apostles, those original followers of Jesus, that they saw him alive after he died. The resurrection was the great motivator for the gospel spreading through the Roman Empire. And I think it's super important, they call that the Jerusalem factor, that there's no reasonable explanation for the, the quick expansion of Christianity in the first century apart from the fact that they really actually saw him alive. There was nothing to gain for the apostles to spread this gospel because they weren't interested in spreading the teachings of Christ. They were interested in actually presenting the world with the actual living Christ who is the source of salvation. They called people to repent and believe and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so I think that this is super important for us to understand 
that this is a key to why the gospel exploded through the known world is they actually saw Jesus, were instructed by Jesus after his death and resurrection. He says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days in speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what is the book of Acts about? The book of Acts is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. If I could borrow from N.T. Wright, he says, the mysterious presence of Jesus haunts the whole story. I think that's a very profound a profound aspect. But what I want to focus in on is actually the, the commissioning of his disciples, what we call the apostles, those original eyewitnesses that actually carried on the mission of Jesus. Um, and I want to actually look at what I would call the fourfold equipment of the apostles of Christ. Because here we see all four in action. First of all, we see that Jesus selected uh, a group of individuals. He chose them. It's a doctrine that we call election. And election actually causes a lot of Christians a lot of discomfort because in our minds, we begin to think of election as God chose some and he rejected others, that he chose you, but he didn't ch- choose her. Uh, and that's a, false, that's a false idea around election. It actually doesn't even line up with how election is presented in the scriptures. In fact, when Jesus said, to his disciples in the Gospel of John, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. He wasn't saying, I chose you out of all these other people and rejected them. He said, no, I chose you. And then what was it followed up with? What's the Great Commission say? I chose you. Now go where? Into the whole world, making disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have taught you. Now, here is, the, here is the thing that we need to understand about the logic of election. And I've shared this before, but I want to keep hammering it because election is a beautiful doctrine that's essential to us understanding our mission. Election is God's sovereign choice, that is his freedom to meet sinners in their sin, to choose us for the purpose of utilizing us to save others. So his choice is not about who's in and who's out. He chose you that through you, he can reach all. So I think that this is super important because we're told right here that he said that he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He chose these individuals not to the rejection of others, but he chose them specifically for the task of reaching the lost, of reaching those who rejected him that his mission has always been for all. An election is about the task given. I choose you that through you I can utilize you for the purpose of bringing my saving message to the world. I think that this is super key. Not only do we see election in these opening verses, but we see revelation as well. He presented himself alive to them. The power of their witness, the power of the mission being accomplished was due to the fact that they talked about a Jesus that they knew. They talked about a Jesus that they had lived with, that they had spent time with, whom they followed. They left all to follow him. And I think that this is so important. You remember what happens when Peter 
um, and John go uh, and go, and they they bring healing at the, at the at the tabernacle. They're they're basically arrested for preaching in the temple the name of Jesus. And when when the religious leaders approach them and and command them to no longer preach in this name, it says that they observed that they were ones who were not educated, but it was clear that they had been with Jesus. That does not come without revelation. And we think in terms, well, they had an unfair advantage. Jesus physically lived with them. They were eyewitnesses. But remember what Jesus said? Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. And I think that it is important for us to understand that nobody actually can enter into the mission of God unless God chooses to reveal himself to them. He chose you. He revealed himself to you that he might utilize you, but the revelation is, not, is a non-negotiable. You can talk about the scriptures all day long, but it doesn't matter if God hasn't revealed himself to you. I think it's important for us to understand that our, our speaking of the scriptures, we can bring as much light as we want, but if people are blind, they're not going to see it. Revelation requires divine intervention. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. And I think we need to understand that. It actually eases the burden. It shows that salvation, when we bring the message of the gospel to the world, it's not dependent upon our ability to save, but it is dependent upon us having received revelation and trusting that God will reveal himself to those whom we communicate with. And I think that this is so important because the question is, is for the revelation for the disciples is that Jesus revealed himself to them, explained himself, taught them. So how does God reveal himself to us today? Is he going to appear to you in your room? Maybe. I hope so. That'd be cool. Uh, He can do what he wants. Uh, It's not beyond him to reveal himself in supernatural ways. I think think actually a great uh, picture of this revelation is that my wife actually came to faith in Jesus in a church service on Easter, but it wasn't until a year later after my son was born that she was praying night after night, not knowing the scripture in the chair while she nursed Henry. She said, God, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. She prayed James backwards, not knowing the verse. And one night, the spirit of God came upon her so powerfully, she said she just felt totally surrounded by absolute peace. That's a supernatural testimony that you can't even really describe other than she knew that God was real, that he was available, that he was present, and that he had changed something inside her. And the next morning when I saw her, she was a different person before she even spoke a word. I knew something happened to her. She was radiant, and she's always radiant, but she was uber radiant, like blingy radiant, So, and still has that. And haven't you met people like that? People that just seem to know Jesus so well, they just, they reflect, there's a light to them. I think that it's, it's actually tangible light. I think it, there's something about it. We can call it aura. We can call it the, the spirit, the energy of people. We've had people, Darcy and I have had people, because Portland loves to talk about energy. We've had like, you guys have the sweetest energy. Uh, it's Jesus. You should try him. He's awesome. <laughs> uh, but I think that this is, this is something that we need to understand. There is no compelling statement that you can make about Jesus if he hasn't revealed himself to you. I think this is so important. The testimony of the church depends upon true revelation. 
And this is something that the disciples had and is one of the reasons that the book of Acts is so exciting and powerful and dynamic is because the mission exploded through these eyewitnesses because they didn't care if their lives were on the line. They didn't care about the threat. It's not that they weren't scared, but the vision that they had received of the, of the resurrected Lord, it trumped any possible fear that, that could confront them in the known world. And I think that this is so profound. Not only do we see election and revelation, but we also see the commission that comes. It says that Jesus commanded them. Um, I, th I think this is a great, it says, he, uh, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive. And what was the commission that Jesus commanded them? Well, I think that the two themes that seem to be the, 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 the central thrust of what Jesus taught the disciples uh, before, before Pentecost and before his ascension was the coming of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God. Those seem to be the two essential things that were, that were at the forefront of what he wanted his disciples to get. And I think that this commission is, is something that we need to understand as well, is that he doesn't just commission and command the apostles, but we continue on in that tradition, making known the person of Christ, the Christ that we know. For Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, they follow me. They hear me, I know them, and they know me, and they follow me. And as we follow him, we are making him known through our own intimacy with him. His love, his light becomes reflected off us. We are not saved into a vacuum. He didn't save you from hell to get you into heaven. What he did is he actually saved you that his presence might actually enter into your life, that you might enter into true intimacy with him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the living God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The commission that we have been given is to actually make Jesus known. And if we're not making Jesus known, we're not functioning like the church. So this is important for us to understand because when Door of Hope started, evangelism was totally necessary for the church to exist. And so that evangelistic temperament, was it was easy for me to hold on to that because if people didn't get saved, we were going to have to shut, close doors because people getting saved was the key to people coming. And so there was a strong evangelistic thrust for the whole community. And one of the things that really marked Door of Hope early on was that everybody was excited about inviting nonbelievers to the church. And so our primary growth was not transfer growth. Our primary growth in the first five years was people actually getting saved. I remember one time we did... we gave people an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And it was like 150 people in a single day where we did baptisms in the, in the 150 to almost 200 a couple summers in a row, where this summer we did, we did eight baptisms in the river. And that made me sad. It's deeply convicting for me because it's easy. Like the church is full. We got two services in a giant space that seats almost 900 people. I'm like, we're, we have money in the bank. We're secure we don't need to be evangelistic. If we're not being evangelistic, we're not functioning as the church. And so I just think I want Acts to rekindle the need. You should be inviting non-believers to the church with you to come and hear the gospel. Come and see. Like, remember how the disciples were when they met Jesus? Come and see. Come and We've met the Messiah. This is an opportunity to invite people into the community to experience the gospel in the context of us together around the word of God, around the living word, Jesus himself. The commission he has given us is the same commission he gave his apostles. It has not changed. The story is still being written by the same king through the same means. Redeem people who have been born again and given the spirit of witness. So, there's election, there's revelation, there's commission. These are all in the first two verses. There's also, I think this is important, <laughs> empowerment. Notice what he says, you need to wait. Before you go, you've got to wait. 
And you've got to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Um, I would argue, as I did before when we went through uh, the eight weeks on the role of the Holy Spirit, that baptism of the Spirit is not a second blessing, but baptism of the Spirit is, is actually regeneration, that, the, that what they were waiting for was a one-time waiting reality, which is the birth of the church, where the Spirit came upon the apostles. Because look at the life of the apostles before they received the power of the Holy Spirit. They were absolute and utter failures. They were embarrassing failures, actually, during the ministry of Jesus. They get stoked when they had power to cast out demons, and Jesus is constantly rebuking them for misunderstanding his purpose, for misunderstanding his plans, for misunderstanding what it is that he was up to, for misunderstanding his whole personhood. In fact, what was Jesus constantly saying to his disciples? Oh, you of what? Little faith. And you know, it's got to hurt the most. You think about the centurion who's not even a Jew who comes forward and he says, I've yet to see faith like this in the world while all his followers are like, what the heck, dude? We like left everything. We're following you. That was their reality. Jesus was not easy on these guys. He loved them, uh, but they did not get it. And we'll see even in this text, they still were not getting it. They still misinterpreted the kingdom of God. And so Jesus knows that. And he's saying, in order to fulfill this mission, it absolutely requires the presence of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said to them in the upper room? This is what we're gonna see fulfilled in the book of Acts. He said, listen, it's good that I go away. He said, greater works than what I have done will you do. Why? Because up to this point, I've been doing these works in one singular body. But when I go to my father, I will send another helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And he, he's gonna convict the whole world of sin, of judgment, of righteousness. He's gonna come and make his home within you. Now our presence is gonna be made manifest in hundreds of thousands and millions of individuals who become literally walking reflections of the living Christ. He said, that it's going to be so much bigger than even what I have done in this, in this space and time. As the historical Christ who walked on the earth, he says, through this reality of the coming spirit, I now will be able to be present for all people who put their faith and trust in me. And this is why he said, you've got to wait for the baptism of the spirit, because when the spirit came, the, that was then. You think about the difference between Peter before Pentecost and Peter after. The day of Pentecost, Peter the one who denied Jesus three times, the one who was impulsive and ripped a sword off, of a, off the side of a soldier and cut off the ear of a, of a servant uh, in his impulsivity, the one who tried to walk on the water but immediately started focusing on the problems rather than Jesus and sunk, the one who, after Jesus' death, even though he's seen Jesus alive, still loses hope and goes back to fishing. This same Peter gets up and preaches a message with such power and such authority that 3,000 people are saved on the day of Pentecost. Why? because it wasn't Peter, it was Peter yielded to the very spirit of Christ who made himself known. He is not dead. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended to glory, and he has now arrived in, in the presence of the spirit to make known to the world his saving purposes. It's incredible. So these, I think we see in these first five verses, these realities, what I think is necessary, it's the fourfold equipment of the apostles of Christ, uh, but as John Stott said, he goes, in a secondary sense, all disciples of Jesus can claim that he has chosen us, he has revealed himself to us, he has commissioned us as his witness, and both promised and given to us his Holy Spirit. It's powerful what you see 
in the book of Acts. Well, look at verses 6 through 8, because this brings us into not only our commission, but to what is the essence of what it is that we're bringing to the world. And what was the thing that Jesus continued to talk to his disciples about? The kingdom of God. It's mysterious. Many books are written about it right now. Uh, and it, uh, it, was like a, it was like a hot topic uh, phrase, but it is extremely important. He says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Here's the disciples before being empowered by the Holy Spirit, still not getting the work of Jesus. He said, Lord, will you at this time restore, not the kingdom of God, but at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I, I'll get into this in a minute, but verse eight is fascinating. It actually outlines the entire book of Acts. Um, but I think that this is, this, is so, this is so great. What did the apostles believe that Jesus was? They believed that he was the rightful, the promised Messiah of Israel. So what was their hope? Is that, okay, he didn't do it before the cross. Well, now he's really awesome he actually rose from the dead. He's walking around with us. So what is the delay? Why is Jesus not just now establish the eternal throne of David? Why does he not actually make Israel awesome and free us from the tyranny of the Roman Empire? And so look at the disciples still are thinking about the kingdom in terms of a, of a nationalistic or a geopolitical sort of vision of it. It's a very earthly vision. They had no missional vision for the world, for the lost yet. They were still thinking in very Jewish terms. They were still thinking in terms of, of physicality. Jesus is here physically with us. Now he can be our king and finally we'll be free from Rome. But Jesus is quick to rebuke them. And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. They don't understand, first of all, the nature of the kingdom of God. We, can, we covered this a lot when, uh, when we were teaching through the book of Matthew, but I think it's important to remind you that the kingdom of God is his rule set up in the lives of his people by the Holy Spirit. It is spread by witness, not by soldiers, through a gospel of peace, if I can borrow from Stott once again, not a declaration of war, and by the work of the Spirit, not by the force of arms, political intrigue, or revolutionary violence. Um, although it must not be identified with any political ideology or program, it has radical political and social implications. And I think that we need to understand that kingdom values come into collision with secular values. This is a reality that we're faced with with the kingdom of God. And I think that what is, what is important about this is that it's easy for us to do the same thing, that we treat the work of God uh, as something that just needs to, to mimic or to mime the ways of the world, when in actuality, the kingdom of God is in total opposition to the kingdom of man. Uh, and the kingdom of God is not spread uh, through the little things that we try to do moralistically, but the kingdom of God is spread through a witness to the reality of Jesus as we become empowered by his Holy Spirit. And so I want to be careful because I think it's easy. I've seen trends within the church today in which people have become more and more obsessed with social justice issues. Does social justice matter? Yes, matters a lot. 
To come under the rule of King Jesus means that we're going to adopt his ethic. And if we're going to adopt his ethic, it's going to play its way out in how we actually live within the society in which we're placed. But what I think is problematic is when we actually take his ethic, but we reject his salvation. We reject his gospel because it's an embarrassment because it's foolishness to those who are perishing. And so we're all about helping those who are caught up in sex trafficking. We're all about uh, feeding the poor. We're all about entering into these different social, uh, political realms of, of justice uh, because it's culturally acceptable. But we think that actually sharing the gospel is something that we shouldn't have to do. I think that the church actually drags the name of Christ through the mud when it actually tries to bury the gospel um, beneath different causes to actually hide the shame it feels at being identified with Jesus, who's so offensive to the world. What I think we need to do is I think we need to be a people who say, I am motivated to live differently in my society, to be engaged in my culture because of Jesus and what he has done for me. It is the gospel that should motivate us to live out a life of love. That is so important for us to understand. It's not that we shouldn't care about these different issues. We shouldn't have the attitude that much of the evangelical church had in America over the last, I would say, really predominantly over the last like 50 years where it's all going to burn anyway. <laughs> uh, we can't preach the gospel and not be a people that actually care for the hurting. Uh, but we can't care for the hurting to hide the fact that we don't want to preach the gospel. I think that that is the problem that we're faced with today. Uh, and I think that the disciples had a very earthy view of what the kingdom was. And its primary reality is that God redeems and saves people. The transformation from the inside out then plays itself out. You can't bring reconciliation. This is why I have such an emphasis upon actually living in the city that we're called to be a witness to because you can't bring reconciliation to a neighborhood unless there's reconciled people living there. Um, and so I think that this is an important aspect of the nature of the kingdom of God. Also, Jesus is challenging their view of the inclusion of the kingdom of God. Their vision is nationalistic. Their view is, is I'm going to bring the gospel to our people. But Jesus's vision and the spirit is a missionary spirit. And this is something that we see. The risen Lord's mandate to mission begins to be fulfilled in, in Acts. Look at, look at verse 8. This is what the mission of God is all about. Look at the table of contents for the whole book is in eight. Chapters one through seven describes events in Jerusalem. Chapter eight mentions the scattering of the disciples to Judea and Samaria and goes on to record the evangelization of Samaria's city by Philip and of many Samaritan villages by the apostles Peter and John, while the conversion of Saul in chapter nine leads on to the rest of the book to his missionary expeditions and finally his journey to Rome. And so the whole outline of, of what the mission of the Spirit is going to be about is found right here in verse 8. And it shows that the inclusion of the kingdom is that God will not be satisfied until there is every tongue from every nation around his throne. I think it's important for us to understand that I'll have more to say about that in just a minute. Uh, and then finally, they also misunderstood the timing of the expansion of the kingdom of God, that this expansion takes time. Now, it did explode in 30 years, but we still are living out the expansion of the kingdom of God, God's reach, God's rule coming over people. This, we are not, the church is not the kingdom. What we are is a kingdom outpost. We are revealing to the world what is coming in full. 
And so God is still actually fulfilling that same mission. They wanted it to happen right then. But what they didn't understand is that concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Isn't it funny? All the people that predict when Jesus is going to come back, why would they put dates down? Right here, it says that not even Jesus knows. We're like, well, maybe he didn't understand math. <laughs> I've, I've heard a lot of guys make predictions like, I am positive, and then like it doesn't happen. They're like, well, it's for sure going to happen on this date. That's not what's important. Jesus said, follow me. He never said where he was going. The issue is not, not where am I going or when is it going to happen? The issue is, am I following the living Christ wherever he may lead me? We're closer now to his return when he will establish his kingdom on when heaven and earth come into a full collision and the new heavens and new earth are revealed. We're closer now than we've ever been before. But we need to understand that we are in the in-between in period um, of Pentecost and Perusia, the return of Jesus. Those, that's the reality in which we live. And I think that this is important for us to understand. I think here you have, in closing, verses 9 through 11, uh, something that should actually just so inspire us, and it's the ascension. Because we, we consider the mission that the disciples are given, and it's the same mission that we have today. We consider the theme of what their mission is, which is bringing the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer, by being witnesses to the living Christ. And then I love this in the ascension story, which is so profound. And when he had said these things in verse 9, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, I love that phrase, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I think we have to ask the question, what is the permanent value of the ascension story? Because this isn't, I, I think this is important. We, we, this is, Jesus is not the first spaceman. Okay, this is not, it's not what's happening here. I'm just like, he just floated off into the, into the atmosphere, and while he was floating off, the angels were around him singing, there's a star man waiting in this. That's not what was happening. I would pick that as the worship song that should be happening, Bowie's Star Man, that's a good one. Uh, but that's not what happened. And I think, I, I actually, I was reading actually some, uh, some of N.T. Wright's thoughts on this particular this particular text. And the way he describes it, I think is so helpful. It's actually, it helps combat our false ideas around the ideas of heaven and earth. Uh, and even what is our ultimate destiny? What is it that we're made for? And he says, Jesus has gone into God's dimension of reality. So remember what he says, he was hidden in the clouds. What is a cloud a picture of in the Old Testament? The presence of God. What is heaven? It's God's space. And so Jesus is actually brought into that dimension of reality, but he'll be back on the day when that dimension and our present one are brought together once and for all. That promise hangs in the air over the whole Christian history from that day to this. That is what we mean by the second coming. When those two dimensions, the heavenly dimension, which Jesus basically disappeared into, uh, it wasn't he floated off into space, but he entered into God's space. What they were able to see for the first time, I think, is the outward vision. They were granted a theophany. Jesus enveloped in the cloud of divine presence. It's profound, really profound. And you remember what Jesus said, you may not be able to see me anymore, but lo, I am what? With you always till the very end of the age. And why were the apostles looking up? 
I think that this is the two issues. On one side, they were looking for sort of an earthly fulfillment, their eyes off the heavenly vision. And in here, the problem now is that they're lingering, looking into the heavens, forgetting that they have an earthly mission. Uh, and this is, this is profound because, first of all, the angel said, why are you looking up into heaven? Because this Jesus is coming back. The, he's coming back exactly the same way. He's coming again. We have fallen into the trappings, I think, in the church today, especially among millennials, where we grew up, if you were like me, I, when I got saved, I got saved into a particular movement, a good movement, a movement I'm so grateful for, but it had a huge emphasis upon eschatology, the return of Christ. And we saw kind of waves of that when some of you were subjected to the, to the incredible writing of the Left Behind series. And I understand, uh, I mean, they even made it into a video game and Kirk Cameron did an awesome job in that film. Uh, this, is, this is the reality is that what it did is I think that when we take facts, that is the scripture and the belief that Jesus is gonna come back and we turn it into fiction, we actually reduce the authenticity of the return of Christ. And I think that, that young lives were like, we got tired of being in churches that said, we're at, we need to do prophecy updates and play pin the tail on the Antichrist. And all the while people are hurting around us. And we see this call to actually be a reflection of Jesus right now in the world that we can't actually just treat the world like it doesn't matter, it's all gonna burn anyway because God has created the world and he's going to give us a new heavens and a new earth and we are to reflect his redemptive reconciling purposes to the world. But that doesn't mean that we should give up or release the return of Christ. Jesus is coming back. I, as far as your eschatology is concerned, I don't care if you believe in the rapture or don't believe in it. Uh, I hope you're right. That would be great. Uh, all I know is that the orthodox vision is that we believe that Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, will return physically and that heaven and earth will be merged into a new reality, a new dimension, and that sin will once and for all be put away and the dominions of darkness will be put away. And here's the thing. When will that day come? No one knows, so don't try to predict it. But I do know this. I believe that the key is actually in that passage in Romans when the fullness of the Gentile has come in, which means when the last person that's gonna be saved gets saved. So all I know is that person's out there somewhere. <laughs> and I've been praying every day, Lord, Lord, please, the one thing I ask, let me be that guy that leads the last person in. Wouldn't that be rad? We're all just like, you guys are doing your stuff, and I like pray with some girl in my office, she gets Christ, and we're all just boom! up in the heavens with Jesus, and you'll be, you guys will all be like, that's my, that's my pastor. He did that. I'm, that's, that's the only glory I want, really. I want to lead the last guy in, or the last lady, or the last kid. But all I'm saying is, is all joking aside, is that, is it possible that we are slowing down the return of Christ because we're not fulfilling the mission to be witnesses? I don't know. It sure seems like it's possible. All I know is that there is an incredible tension in Scripture of God fulfilling his sovereign purposes regardless of what happens, and at the same time, an incredible responsibility upon us because the gospel sets us free, which means that we have not only the freedom to do what is right, but we also seem to have the freedom to do what is stupid. And when we forget that we are called to be missionary people, inspired by a missionary Holy Spirit, we lose sight of what the church is to be all about. I wish we would live with the idea that that person, that that, that man, that woman that you come into contact with at work, that family member, that, that 
son, that daughter that doesn't yet know Jesus, that they could be the last one. An incredible burning response that we are messing around. We're not messing around with games, that we're actually playing with eternal realities and that the living Christ will come back as savior and judge. And he will judge the world, but he will also judge our works. And I want to stand before him and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. I want door of hope to hear the phrase, well done. You have truly been my bride. You have witnessed to me. You have carried on the narrative of Acts and you have finished well. Do you want that? We have a mission. We're part of a kingdom and Jesus is coming back. So let us live like it could be today. Let's pray.